Chapter Fourteen of Tell It All by Fanny Stenhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Saintly Pilgrims on the Way, the Divine Handcart Scheme. One Sunday morning in early spring, I attended a meeting of the saints in Williamsburg. My husband was there and took part in the service, and so did the Apostle Taylor and one or two other Utah elders. I went to that meeting in a very desponding state of mind, for our prospects since the day of our arrival had not brightened very much, and I felt the need of some comforting and cheering words. Whether it was the influence of the clear spring morning, or that the elders had noticed the depression of spirit among the saints, I cannot tell, but I know that on that particular occasion their words seemed to me more earnest and encouraging than they had been for a long time past. As we came out from the meeting, Brother Benton, one of the elders, stepped up to my husband and said, Brother Stenhouse, they are expecting to arrive tonight or tomorrow. I suppose you will be down at the gardens to meet them. I knew well enough who they were who were expected to arrive, and so did Mr. Stenhouse. Yes, he said, of course, I shall be there, but most likely we shall have to wait a few days before they come. Then he stopped and talked over the matter with Elder Benton. Now it chanced that at that time Brigham Young was trying an experiment. The prophet of the Lord sometimes finds it necessary, notwithstanding the revelations which he is supposed to receive, to try experiments, like other men, before he can feel sure that his plans are likely to succeed. The only difference between him and other men is that he, knowing himself that his plans are his own inventions, or the inventions of the leaders, gives out that they come direct from God, thereby deceiving the ignorant, innocent, and confiding people. And when his plans fail, as they often do, he never confesses that he is wrong or mistaken, but lays all the blame on some other person, or failing that on the Lord or the devil. Other men, as a rule, say nothing about the Lord or devil, but when their experiments fail, they frankly confess that they themselves were not inspired, but were liable to err. That is all the difference. In the present instance, Brigham Young tried an experiment upon a rather large scale. Up to the year 1856, the Mormon immigrants made the journey from the frontiers across the plains by ox teams, as I have already described and every season some of the wealthier Mormons formed themselves into an independent company, paid their own expenses, and traveled with more comfort. The expense to the poorer immigrants was very small, for they performed the greater part of the journey on foot, the ox teams being used for transporting provisions and baggage, one hundred pounds of the latter being allowed to each immigrant. This plan was so far a success, and the settlements of the saints increased thereby slowly but surely in population and wealth. There were, however, at that time thousands of saints in Europe anxious to emigrate, but who were too poor to provide the small sum requisite for that purpose. During the winter of 1855, this difficulty was discussed in conference by Brigham and the leading men in Salt Lake, and someone suggested what was afterwards known as the handcart scheme. The idea of this scheme 
was to transfer the people from Liverpool to the frontiers in the cheapest possible way, and for them then to cross the plains with light-made hand-carts, just strong enough to carry the fewest possible necessary articles, but sufficiently light for the men, women, and even young girls to draw them. This plan would not perhaps have been a bad one if it had been properly carried out, and if Brigham Young had seen, as he might have done, that suitable preparations were made beforehand. But the handcart emigration scheme began with a lie and ended in ruin. The confiding saints were told that God had specially inspired his servant Brigham for this purpose, and the scheme was a revelation direct from on high. No proper measures were taken to provide for the emigrants. All was done upon faith, faith on the part of the people in their, as they supposed, inspired leaders, deception on the part of those leaders towards the people, whose only fault was that they trusted them too well. The millennial star proclaimed the plan to the saints in Europe, and so great was the response to this special summons that in that year, 1856, it was roughly estimated that no fewer than five or six thousand Mormon emigrants traveled from Liverpool to Salt Lake City. It was the first company of these emigrants that Brother Benton alluded to when he told Mr. Stenhouse that they were expected that night or the next. But in those days emigrant vessels were frequently delayed by adverse winds and other circumstances, and no one could calculate upon the exact time of their arrival in port. The following morning, my husband, when he returned from the Mormon office, brought with him a letter bearing the English postmark, and addressed to me in the neat, unmistakable handwriting of Mary Burton. I had been waiting and watching for a letter from her ever since our arrival. I was anxious to hear from her, and I hastily tore it open, so impatient was I to know how she was getting on. What I read interested me deeply, though it did not surprise me. I had seen Mary many times after the interview which I have already related, and our conversations and discussions were to us of all absorbing interest, but as they were mostly personal I have not cared to record them in this narrative. To tell the truth, her love affairs with Elder Shrewsbury occupied more and more the most prominent place in all our discussions. His enthusiasm was perfectly infectious. As long as Mary absolutely refused to see him, her love for him and her faith in Mormonism were anything but overpowering. But Elder Shrewsbury was one of those peculiar persons who have a sort of magnetic charm about them, who without our knowing it, or even in some instances, contrary to our will and reason, enlist all our sympathies and leave behind them an impression that we vainly try to efface. He only wanted opportunity, and his success was sure opportunity he had had for pressing his suit with mary and making an impression upon her heart ever since the day when they had met at my door and had taken that walk together as mary said for the purpose of discussing important matters now the letter which i received opened to me another chapter in mary's life which without the gift of prophecy i might have easily predicated Elder Shrewsbury's patience and perseverance met with their due reward, and Mary at length promised to become his wife, but fascinated though she was, 
and herself almost as deeply in love as he was, she nevertheless made one condition which showed that she had not entirely lost that prudence and determination which she had shown in the early days of their courtship. When he spoke to me in that way, you know how, Sister Stenhouse, she said in her impulsive way, how could I persist in saying no to him? It wasn't in my heart to do so. I didn't say yes in so many words, but I simply said nothing, and he took my silence for consent. Then, but no, I won't even tell you everything. I know he thought he was going to have it all his own way, but I didn't think so. I told him then that I had firmly resolved upon one thing, that I would never marry him unless he made a solemn vow and promise before God that he would never enter into polygamy. I could not hide from him that I loved him. He knew it and could see it. But I said I never would go to Utah alone, and I certainly never would marry at the risk of my husband taking another wife. No, I was willing to give him my heart, my all. It was only fair for him to do the same by me. He was very near me then, and my hand was in his, and he was looking up into my eyes. Then he whispered the promise I had asked of him, and, dear Sister Stenhouse, I know I can depend on his word. We shall be happier in this world by ourselves, and we feel quite sure that God will not ask us to do anything in heaven that would make us miserable. Perhaps I oughtn't say this, but I'm so happy that I cannot allow myself one single wretched doubt about the future of my husband, such as I used to have. We were married on the 27th of January, and now we are getting ready for Zion and are busy day and night. Of course you have heard of the divine plan, the handcart scheme. Oh, Sister Stenhouse, I am so very, very much ashamed of myself for all the wicked things that I used to say about the apostles and the elders. Since our marriage, Elder Shrewsbury has explained everything to me and set things in their right light. It is a glorious privilege for us to be permitted to gather to Zion, and now I know my dear husband will never even think of another besides myself. I glory in the thought of leaving the Gentile world and all its wickedness. We will go with the first company this season. I will tell you all the rest of the news when I meet you, dear. So Mary Burton was married, and coming with a handcart company. Why, I said, turning to my husband, they'll be here in a day or two now. Perhaps today, he replied. They did not, however, arrive either that day or the next, but towards the end of the week we were told that their vessel was in the river, and I accompanied my husband to Castle Gardens to see them. A strange spectacle was presented to our view. More than six hundred Mormon emigrants were gathered there, all on their way to Zion, and burning with zeal and enthusiasm worthy of a better cause. There were aged men and women whose heads were hoary with the snows of many a winter, and whose tottering steps had borne them to the verge of threescore years and ten. There were stout-hearted fathers of families, and matrons with sons and daughters growing up around them. There were young men in the pride and strength of manhood, and maidens in the modest blush of womanly beauty, and little toddling children, and babes in their mother's arms, all obedient to what they thought was the command of God himself, all with their faces set steadfastly and anxiously Zionward.
Let not the reader smile at the blind infatuation of those poor emigrants. Would he or she have suffered so confidingly, so faithfully, for his or her religion? They might be mistaken, but truly theirs was a faith which hoped all things, believed all things, endured all things. Surely in his sight, who judges the heart, the blind obedience of those men and women who were ready to suffer and to endure unto the bitter end, because in their childlike faith they thought it was his holy will, such practical devotion was more truly acceptable than the formal professions of an untested faith which orthodox professors are so ready to make. I met at Castle Gardens many whom I had known in the old country, but it was one particular face which I was anxious to see, a man wrapped in a thick greatcoat and with a fur cap upon his head brushed against me, and before I had time to raise my eyes my hand was grasped in his, and I heard Mary's husband say, "'Oh, Sister Stenhouse, I'm so glad to see you. I knew we should meet you in New York.' Come and see Mary. She's my Mary now. I went with Elder Shrewsbury, and I saw Mary. But, oh, how greatly was she changed. When I returned from our Swiss mission and saw her after an interval of several years, I was, of course, struck with the alteration which had then transformed her from a pretty little fairy-like girl into a decorous young lady contemplating matrimony. But although I had been absent from England only a few months, I observed a much more striking alteration in her than on the previous occasion. It was not now, I thought, so much an outward and personal change as a new development in her inner consciousness, her soul itself. Her form was as graceful and her eyes as bright as ever, but from those eyes there now shone forth another light than that which I thought so charming in bygone time. Her affection for me was as warm and demonstrative as when we first met. She recognized me in a moment, before her husband had time to say a word, and throwing both her arms round me, she kissed me again and again with all the effusion of her childish days. Taking my hand, she led me gently into a quiet corner and seated me beside her on a big trunk, and then she began to talk. It was the same soft, sweet voice again which used to be so dear to me when I was left all alone in Southampton, soon after my marriage, while my husband was on mission in Italy. She told me all the story of her courtship, all and much more than she had told me in her letter. But it was when she came to speak of her marriage of her husband and especially of their pilgrimage to Utah, that I observed more especially the change which had taken place in her. She was no longer the light-hearted girl, half doubting her strange religion and rejecting it altogether when it did not coincide with her own ideas and wishes. No, Elder Shrewsbury, had he been ten times a Mormon elder, could not have wished for a more obedient, a more earnest, I might say, a more fanatical believer than was now to be found in his young and beautiful wife. Her eyes really glowed with enthusiasm as she spoke of the work of the Lord, and of gathering to Zion, and her voice, though soft and sweet as ever, had in it now and then a tinge of sternness which told of a determination and spirit which the casual observer would never have suspected. I expressed some surprise that she and her husband, not being without funds, should have gone with the handcart company when they might have waited, and gone in so much more comfort with one of the independent companies. 
Why, Sister Stenhouse, she said, we have done it as a matter of faith. Certainly we could have afforded to go in any way we chose, but my husband said we ought to be an example to the poorer saints, so we gave away nearly all our money to help the emigration fund, and then we came, just as you see us, along with the rest. But the danger and discomfort is so great, I suggested. Surely the Lord does not want us to sacrifice ourselves when no one is benefited by it. Not a bit, said she. There's no danger, Sister Stenhouse, and, if there were, it would only please me all the more. As for discomfort, why, we should have had that anyway, and we both glory in making sacrifices. Besides which, we have been told by the Apostle that this will be the most pleasant and successful journey across the plains that has ever been made. I am a little doubtful of the promises of apostles and elders, I said, and I remember, Mary, when you used to agree with me. Oh, I know I did, she answered, but Brother Shrewsbury has shown me how wrong I was. I never doubt now. But I think you have a wrong notion about this handcart scheme. It is not an ordinary plan such as any man might have made. God himself revealed this plan to Brigham, and in fact we call it the divine plan in our songs. Oh, you should hear our songs. They're a little rough, but the singing is so earnest and the voices of the men and girls blend so well together that I know you'd like them. There's only one thing that I don't like about this plan and that I dare say is all right if only I knew it. I think, Mary, I said, I could tell you a good deal that you wouldn't like if you knew it. No, dear, she replied hastily, as if afraid to hear me. Don't tell me unpleasant matters. I'll tell you all I meant. The prophet and Heber C. Kimball and Jedediah Grant counseled the richer emigrants to give up as much as they could, all their property, if they had faith enough, to help the poor brethren to emigrate. But the American elders had private instructions, so Brother Shrewsbury told me, to use the money to help out all the unmarried girls who are willing to go. I confess that this troubled me not a little, but my husband says that when we get to Zion we shall find all will be right, and of course I believe him. Mary's conversation puzzled me a good deal at the time. She had formerly been so clear-sighted and so unbiased by prejudice, and now she seemed ready to believe anything. All her husband's enthusiasm was now her own. She saw with his eyes, and in the intensity of her love for him, she believed all that he accepted as true. Long after, when I thought of that short interview, I called to mind her impulsive earnestness, and I felt that a secret misgiving, unconsciously to herself, was partly the cause of it. Unknown to herself, her excess of zeal was the offspring of doubt. Life in the future was in anticipation to my poor friend, one long day of hope and happiness. She could not see the shadow of a cloud. No coming sorrow darkened her way. Zion, to her excited imagination, was the abode of peace and sanctity and unchanging joy. I asked her whether the saints in England had heard any of those strange reports about Brigham Young defying the government, which had attracted so much attention in this country. Certainly, she said, it is because the day is so very near when all intercourse between God's people and the Gentile world 
shall be cut off for ever that these great efforts are being made to gather the saints to zion of course you know this but i don't think you know all why at the last general conference in liverpool the president had instructions from salt lake to propose brigham young as prophet seer revelator and king king i said how can president young ever be king utah is part of the territory of the united states and under their jurisdiction it is not even a state itself yet and congress has refused to sanction the name of deseret this country will never suffer a kingdom to be set up in utah you must be misinformed sister mary no sister stenhouse she exclaimed i am under no mistake my husband assured me that the conference accepted the proposition and that it was received unanimously the saints are gathering in from all parts of the world and when war is declared they will not be found unprepared why here on board with us the american elders are all provided with swords and revolvers of the very best make that could be got for love or money and i myself have heard them say that brigham young intends shortly to declare his independence of the united states we didn't know this before we left england but we felt sure that he had some great purpose in view which had been revealed to him before we left i said the saints were all eager to emigrate yes dear she answered but nothing like they are now you have no idea how excited and anxious everybody is some of the people in order to obey counsel sold their watches and jewelry and even their best clothes scarcely keeping enough for the journey and every one who had any money gave it away brigham young set a noble example in that even the gentiles would admire him if they knew all why we had on board ship with us brother tennant the rich new convert who paid thirty thousand dollars for the property which brigham young so generously gave to help the emigration fund he hardly had enough left to carry him and his family to zion and now he is going to cross the plains with us to settle in salt lake city he is somewhere here among the emigrants i believe at the present moment and you could ask him all about it if you liked the brethren assure him that brother brigham is so liberal that he will get vastly more than the value of his thirty thousand dollars when he reaches zion and i hope he will for i like both him and his wife all this was thus far true but it was with some misgivings that i heard mary talk about it still i tried to persuade myself that it was a sin to doubt how little did either of us imagine that after poor mr tennant's miserable death upon the plains we should live to see his wife destitute and defrauded of her property by generous-hearted brigham dragging out a miserable existence in zion and dependent even for a crust of bread upon the kindness of the brethren and yet as i previously stated in another place this was how the prophet under the mask of liberality contrived for his own purposes to cheat this unfortunate and too confiding saint then we talked of what more nearly interested ourselves and mary asked me when mr stenhouse and myself were coming out i told her that it was quite uncertain but that we expected to before long at any rate you will come out before the season is over she said most likely so i replied 
but you will be safely there and settled before we arrive. How little did she imagine the fearful scenes she was to witness, the terrible sufferings she was to endure before the season she spoke of had passed away. Could I at that time have known all, I would have prayed that sooner than set out on that fearful journey she might find refuge in the grave from the horrors which, unknown to her, were brooding over her way. We talked long, and then my husband joined us. Elder Shrewsbury was called away by some necessary duty, and when we parted it was with many promises to write frequently to each other of our common religious interests, as well as the welfare of ourselves and those we loved. Then I spoke with several other old friends, and we exchanged greetings with all sorts of people, for my husband, wherever he goes, is always sure to be upon speaking terms with almost everybody he meets. The handcart company left New York for Utah, a long and formidable journey at best, but in that instance, through mismanagement and neglect, one of the most fatal expeditions that imprudent man has ever undertaken and it was not until months and months had passed away, and another season had come round, that we heard anything of their fate. And time went on, but my troubles did not lighten. My husband still continued to work at the Mormon office, and after a while his salary was slightly increased from time to time. But still his earnings were altogether inadequate for the support of a family, and I found it absolutely necessary to obtain some employment for myself. It cost me many a long and weary day of search and inquiry, and many a battle with my pride before I could get anything to do. But at last I was successful, and although my little ones required constant attention, I contrived to add a very decent quota to the scanty family purse. And thus matters continued, until the following year our life of uncertainty and care unchanged. Little in my life at that time is worth recording. To me it was one long, painful struggle, and any change which could come I felt must be for the better. My experience of Mormonism was of course enlarged as new facts presented themselves to my observation, and by nothing was my faith so much shaken as by the discrepancies between the written and spoken Mormonism which was presented with fair face to the European saints, and the world at large, and the actual conduct of the elders. From the first moment when polygamy was announced, the leaders had strictly forbidden the missionaries to enter into any alliances with the sisters abroad, or to make any proposals of marriage to them, or to enter into any matrimonial covenants. In the language of Heber C. Kimball, Brigham's first counselor, they were not to pick out from the flock the young, fair, and tender lambs, but were to bring them all safely home to Zion. This counsel was all very well, for it tended to keep the elders out of mischief, and afforded an opportunity to the brethren at home to select more and more youthful wives from the fair converts who were gathered into Zion but the missionaries found it very irksome to obey this counsel, and in point of fact those who did so formed a very small minority. One of the missionaries who had just returned from Europe came one day to our house in New York and brought a youthful sister with him. 
he was by no means a handsome man or prepossessing in his appearance but i saw at once that he had succeeded in obtaining considerable influence over the young sister's mind he said she was not very happy and he wanted her to stay with some respectable family for a week or two until they set out for utah and i agreed that she should stay with us she began to play with the children and took one of them in her arms in a way which attracted my attention for i noticed that tears were in her eyes and she excited my sympathy i asked her as gently and as delicately as i could what was the matter with her and what her sorrow was and she told me that she herself had two little ones at home and was wretched at being parted from them she had obeyed counsel and had left her husband and a happy home to go to zion she loved them all dearly but deluded by false teachings and promises that she should soon have her children again she had stolen away and left them all i reasoned with her tried to make her see how wrongly she had acted and persuaded her to return to her husband and seek his forgiveness no it was all in vain the salvation of her soul she thought was beyond all earthly considerations she must stifle the suggestions of her heart within her she must hasten to zion thus she left me and like many another victim i never expected to see her again one morning a few months later i was astonished to receive a visit from her after expressing my pleasure at seeing her once more she told me what i had said had so impressed her that when the emigrants had arrived at st louis she had refused to proceed any further on the journey had written to her husband had made all right with him and was now on her way back to her home in england my story is so full of painful reminiscences that it is with pleasure that i record this incident one of the rare cases in which folly was not succeeded by utter ruin and misery alas how many instances i might mention which fell beneath my own personal observation of wives and mothers led away by the delusive doctrines which they mistook for inspiration and who sought vainly through years of misery for peace and rest until at length they found it in the darkness of the tomb towards the end of the year eighteen fifty seven the difficulties in utah and a financial panic in new york resulted in the discontinuance of the mormon my husband was thus thrown out of employment and to add to our difficulties the people for whom i work suspended operations this new trial of our faith however was not long out of apparent evil good came released from his obligations to the apostle and the mormon paper my husband now set earnestly to work to obtain a living without the crippling influences of counsel or the dictates of those whom his religion taught him to respect i had always believed that if suffered to act for himself his energy was such that he would certainly carve his way to a respectable position in the world in this i was not deceived either at the time of which i speak or at a later period when in salt lake city he engaged in active business on his own account in new york where he had been by this time appointed president of the eastern mission 
and was actively engaged in advocating the claims of the Mormon Church, he sought and found employment on the staff of the Herald, and in connection with other daily papers, and such was his success that from a condition of misery and poverty we were very soon raised to a position of comfort, and surrounded by every luxury suitable to our station in life and this position we enjoyed until called upon to leave all and journey across the plains to zion our own journey to zion was postponed for a while but not long before we set forth i received the long-expected letter which mary burton had promised me and as it contains a vivid picture of a mode of transit the only mode which could then be used across the plains and shows what people were forced to endure so recently as a few short years ago, I shall give extracts from it in the following chapter. For I feel sure that if the reader did not peruse the story in the exact words of my unfortunate friend, he would never believe that in this country, and in our own times, such a terrible tragedy could have been enacted. End of chapter 14